Nice to look at you too. Welcome. Before I get into uh, our message, I just wanted to uh, let you know that this last week, several of our leaders and staff members were at a conference uh, up in Chicago. The name of the conference is the Gospel Coalition. And uh, the Gospel Coalition is an organization that is drawing uh, resources together, staff, or staff people and pastors and, and uh, uh, you know, Christian school kind of people who are really trying to think strategically about how to do gospel ministry in the 21st century. And uh, there were people from all over the world that came into this thing, and there was a great lineup of speakers, and we had a wonderful time. And I just want to encourage you, uh, do yourself a spiritual favor. Sometime this week, when you're about to waste yet another hour of your life in front of the television, turn it off, go to the gospelcoalition.org, uh, and just pick one of the messages. I think all of the, it's video and audio, you can check any of them out. And uh, just, uh, just bless your heart by listening to uh, some of the things that were said there. It was a great week. Um, it wasn't a whole week, a couple days, but had a, had a wonderful time. So I'd encourage you to do that. I think you'll be glad that you did. Well, this is the second week in our series, Finding Faith in Troubled Times. The audio clip earlier in the service reviewed some of the things that we talked about last week. Uh, but you know, the times that we live in, they are uncertain times. These are like strange days that we live in. So much uh, up and down, so much in, in turmoil, so much uncertainty. I was even thinking about, uh, you know, last week I gave the message, and th- during this week, all of a sudden, for the very first time, I heard about swine flu. Here we are, just a week after our message last week, and now the front of all the news websites is all about swine flu and this new flu that is in Mexico, and they're afraid might become a pandemic, etc., etc. And there's a lot of people that are concerned about that. And I just was thinking, you know, like a year ago, it was bird flu that was threatening to wipe us out, and now, now it's swine flu that's threatening to wipe us out. And I just, you know, when birds and pigs can destroy us, these are strange days that we're living in, don't you think? So uh, they are. And these are wonderful days for us to, uh, to be ministering uh, the word because uh, the people, the questions that people are asking are very important questions. Questions like, you know, where do I go for, where do I go for answers to this? Where do I, where, who do I talk to to give me some confidence about what's going to happen in the future? And the normal places that people go for stuff like this are also uncertain. You know, you think, uh, well, I've got financial questions, I'm going to look to Wall Street. Or I've got, you know, I've got uh, uh, concerns in my life, so I look to Washington, D.C. Or I've got health concerns, my, my body is in recession, so I go to the Mayo Clinic or the Cleveland Clinic or some other place like that. But at the core of this, this recession is showing that these places can't provide what we're longing for. You know, Wall Street can't buy peace. And Washington, D.C. can't legislate contentment. And the Mayo Clinic, for all of their brilliance, they can't prescribe security. And these are the things that we really want. But all the institutions, the normal places we go for answers, can't provide what we are longing for. And so that is why uh, we need to crank up the volume. 
You, my dear Christian friend, have opportunities in this day right now to speak truth into the lives of people in your sphere of influence like you have never had before. Because before they wouldn't listen. But now there is so much upheaval and turmoil and uncertainty. People are listening and they're wondering. And they may be open to it for the very first time. In fact, you might be here today open to it for the very first time. All of a sudden now you're thinking maybe there is something that... God would have to say. And this is why Christianity provides answers, the same answers that we've, that has been said for 2,000 years now, and uh, that God has given us in his word and in his son. And so what we're doing in this series is, is just kind of uh, un- uncovering that and saying once again, what what does God have to say in times of recession? What, what does it have to, he have to say in times of difficulty? So the tape quickly reviewed. I'll just do it again. Last week we saw that uh, life is uncertain because of the fall. We had a great situation going on. Uh, We were there in the Garden of Eden, but we rebelled against God and into this world then came consequences so that there is trouble and there is disease and there is brokenness in this world because of sin. Secondly, that God is sovereign over recessions too. He rules and reigns. He transcends the Uh, difficulties of this world and providentially is working in all of these circumstances in our life. He is the divine orchestrator. He is sovereign. And then thirdly, recessions show where our faith really lies. That's one of the great blessings of a recession, a trouble in life, is it helps us see what's in our heart in ways that we wouldn't otherwise. This week I got an email from a woman in our church. She gave me permission to share it with you. And uh, this is a woman who, I think maybe a year ago-ish, uh, found out that she has cancer. And, you know, they say there's nothing that brings clarity to your mind like the words, you have cancer. And so this woman in our church has been dealing with this, has been going through the treatments and, and uh, went through all of that. And now she writes me this email uh, this week, and here's what she says. Dear Pastor Steve, thank you for your prayers and continuing prayers for my family. After talking with the surgeon about the nodule on my lung, he had a few options we prayed about. Since the nodule is so small and its location, and its location, it is not possible to do a biopsy, he would have to remove the top one-third of the right lung. I was floored when he said he would have to remove a portion of my lung. I left the office very angry. I really wasn't expecting that answer and didn't really know how to handle it. After talking with my family in prayer, I have peace to wait three months and to do the CT scan again. Thank you again for your prayers. Another battle is set before me. Lord, keep me strong. I am so thankful for those who have lifted me up in prayer and love and support. These are my errands. I thank God every day for them. Now, this is a woman in our church. In fact, she might be in this service, possibly. I don't even know. You don't know who she is. But... We learn a lot about her, don't we, just from this email? Here she has a trial. Where's she going? Who's she turning to? Where does her hope lie? Lord, give me strength. Thank you for people that are praying for me. Please continue to uphold me. We see in this woman, we see the character of her faith, don't we? We see, really, bottom line, where her hope lies. Because in in a trial like cancer, in a recession like cancer, you can't fake it anymore. I mean, the real... You're not faking it at that point. It's the real deal. And we see in her what is in her 
heart. And this is what I'm trying to say to you, that these trials that come into our life, these are on what, you know, you can maybe look at them one way and say, oh, they're bad, they're bad. But in actuality, what they're doing is they're revealing what is it within us. And this is how they are helpful and why they can be uh, a great blessing to us. And so that's really where we're going today. How to, how to have a good recession, how to have a good trial. How not to waste the experiences that the trial is bringing in your life. So how can we make the most of it? So here are some, some truths, some biblical truths uh, to share with you. Number one, in an economic recession, to feel inside a little bit what much of the world feels every day. In an economic recession, to feel in my heart a little bit what billions of people live with every single day. Now, here we are in America, okay? The richest country in the history of the world. We are the richest Christians in the history of the world. There is nobody that is even close. Now, you might be here and saying, well, I don't really feel particularly rich. It's because you're comparing yourself to all the other rich people around you. We are unbelievably affluent. We have so many comfort, creature comforts that, that allow our life to be what it is. And especially, I think, young people who have grown up with this think that everybody in the world has got, you know, cars in the garage and a couple TVs in the house and, and uh, you know, games to play and money in the bank and vacations and la, 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 la. I mean, the whole world lives that way. Why? Because my whole world is, is that way. No, that is not the case. In fact, there are billions of people who live every day in recession. Every day is recession. Let me give you just a couple statistics. If you are the average, Ameri- average Lake County household, okay, the, just the average Lake County household, income-wise, median income, the statistics tell us that you are in the top richest people in all of the world. Now, that's Lake County. Okay, this isn't like Hollywood, right? I just kind of call it middle America. Average people in middle America. Top 0.9%. If you are average, there are in the world today 5,800,000,000 people that are poorer than you are. Think of that. So here's what happens. A recession comes and our, our, the stock market goes down like this, right? And we feel inside this kind of like, oh no, there's uncertainty. I'm not worth what I was and calculating and all of that. And then we look on the news and they say, well, this month's uh, housing uh, report comes out and the average home in America has lost this much in value. And we go, oh. And we feel inside like, oh no, what's going to happen, right? And so we feel this kind of fear almost. Like, my security, which was in my value and my money and my investments, now that is being taken away from me and I'm having to deal with the possibility of approaching the future without knowing how my needs are going to be met. A little bit. That's like a 10% drop. We get all like, are you with me? You're not feeling like it. You with me? We get all. Amen? 
Okay, all right. Okay. Think of this. Billions of people live every day with that at 100%. They don't have savings accounts. They don't have pension plans. They don't have equity in their house. They don't have any of these things. They live every day legitimately praying the Lord's Prayer, uh, give me today daily bread. Americans pray that prayer. We're like, well, I'll pray the prayer, but I know I'm going to Panera, you know. It seems sort of superficial to Americans who are trusting in the money that we have. But billions of people pray that legitimately every day. And so in the midst of our recession, we need to recognize that this is helping us. This is helping us to get over ourselves and to realize the needs of the people in the world, and maybe even in our community around us. And this is a good fruit that trials bring, especially economic ones. They tenderize our hearts. To people who are perhaps in need. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1. Blessed be the the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Who comforts us in all our affliction. Okay. Affliction. So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. With the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted. In the midst of our uncertainty, when God brings some kind of comfort, now I have a, I look at other people differently, don't I? The pain that I have felt opens my heart to pain that other people are going through in a way that reading all the books, watching all the movies and all that never can. Why? Because I have felt it myself. I have a friend who runs a ministry in a downtown city. A big part of his ministry is he takes people on, I forget what, he, I probably got some name for it, but like, it's like a weekend where you live uh, like a homeless person. You dress like a homeless person, you sweep under the bridge, uh, you cook in the pot, the can or whatever, and you live out that experience. Now, on the other side of 48 hours of living like a homeless person, do you think you might look at the person who's homeless in downtown Chicago just a little bit different? Absolutely. Why? Because you've tasted this much of what that experience is like. And of course, in the midst of it, you're going, well, it's another 12 hours and I get to go home back and take a shower and get all, you know, it's not the same, but it's a little bit that way. It's a little bit that way. And friends, pain in our life should open our hearts to see the needs of people around us. I had a guy just yesterday told me, a guy in our church, he said, you know what? The loss of my brother has opened up incredible doors of ministry with people. Anybody I run into that is grieving about anything, we just open up to one another. That's the way that it is, isn't it? When you're going through some kind of a trial, now anybody else that's going through that same kind of trial, you got this thing between you, right? It's empathy. It's sympathy. And this is a good fruit. So whenever trials come into our life, we have to look at them and say, how can I understand the pains that other people are going through? How can, I, how can I minister to them in some way? Because now the pain kind of, that empathy is a motivation to reach out and to meet needs around us. So think of that today. Billions of people feeling 100% what our little 10% stock drop meant in our heart. Brothers and sisters in Christ around the world today, praying legitimately, give me today daily bread. And what that might not do in the American church and even in our church to kind of open our hearts and open our pocketbooks to meet the needs 
around us. I think that would be a good fruit. So feel a little bit in the midst of the trial what much of the world feels every day. Here's the second thing, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. Learn to live wisely. And then if the economy changes, keep doing it. Here, now this is, this is I'm going to summarize the book of Proverbs with this statement. Most of the decisions that we make in life are not right and wrong decisions. They are wisdom decisions. And when the economy is booming and everything is up, all decisions appear wise. I see this. You know, we have these young couples that get married and, you know, she just graduated from college, got $40,000 debt. She just graduated from maybe from whatever school she's got debt and, you know, they're living off credit cards. But then they like buy a house and two new cars and wow, look at that television. Is that... Is that wallpaper or is that a TV on the wall? You know, and you're like, what is going on? And, but you know what? When everything's booming and everything's up, it all appears to be wise, right? You could take your entire family inheritance, buy a house five times bigger than you ever should, and it'll seem to work out. Why? Because the value's going up. Everything's good. But when things go down, guess what happens? The wisdom or lack of wisdom in past decisions that we have made and stewardship of things that we have done now are revealed. And the truths of God's word, and you know, this is not, a, this is not an economy manual, the Bible, but it, says, it has a lot to say about money and it has a lot to say about stewardship. And you can read through Proverbs about considering the ant and the wise man who the ant stores up, you know, for winter and all of that. There's all kinds of principles of wisdom that the Bible gives to us. And God's people, we should live by the wisdom of God's word. And so when everything's going great, nobody knows whether, you know, the, the decisions were wise or not. But here now, in a moment like this, it's sort of becoming evident, isn't it? So learn the lessons of wisdom. And then when the economy turns, if it does, don't go back to the old way. Keep living according to wisdom. Be a wise steward of what God gives to you. So that's just sort of a little parental pastoral exhortation, but I wanted to sort of slide it in in this message. Okay, now let's get to the really good stuff. Here's the third thing. And this is so massive. If you, I, I, I don't know if you got pens out and notes out, but I want you to get what I'm going to say the rest of this message. And here is a huge one. In the midst of the trial... Want what God wants the trial to do in me. Want what God wants the trial to do in me. This to me is one of the biggest, this, is, this could be the biggest thing. Let me ask this question. What does God want to do in your life? What is God's goal for you, Christian? Think about it. How would you answer that question? Okay, we know that God is sovereign. He works providentially in everything. But what is his aim? What is he trying to accomplish actually in our lives? And for the answer to this, let's turn to Romans 8 with me. I will have the text up on the screen as well, but I always prefer you look it in your own Bible if you got one. Romans 8 verse 28. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. 
One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. One, two, three, five, six, seven, eight, nine, twenty-eight. Now you're there. Romans 8, 28 and 29. Here's what it says. And we know that those who love God, for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. All right. Very famous verses, verse 28. Most Christians are familiar with this verse. We love verse 28. It says, in, in all things, God is working together for our good. Now, this is a great assurance, isn't it? All right, God's on my side. God is for me. God is working in my life. It's wonderful. But here's the problem. Most people look at that verse, especially the word good, And in our minds, we think that God is working towards our definition of what good would be. So that if you were to ask the average American Christian, what is God's definition of good? What is the good that he is doing? Out will come something like this. Good money. Good health. Good career. Good marriage, maybe. Good kids who grow up and produce good grandkids. And I live a good life. And then I die having experienced no problems in my life. And I go to heaven where I will experience eternity without trouble. This is my definition of good. All right? No. What? That doesn't sound like a Christian. That sounds like just the American dream. This is the pursuit of happiness. And this is what we all have the right to do. Wait a second. That is not what God is saying here. Notice notice what he is saying. Look again. He is working everything together for good. Okay, for those called according to his purpose. So we're talking here about Christians. He's working everything for good. What's the good he's working towards? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Okay, now here it is. In eternity past, this is what the verse is saying. In eternity past, God set in motion, sovereignly set in motion a plan, a predetermined plan that was for our good. Absolutely, from the beginning, for our good. In our present experience, the good is the gospel. In the gospel, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that he was resurrected on the third day, that now there is in this world a way for sinners to be reconciled to God. And this comes by faith, so that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so this is the, the, the wonderful truth that we rejoice in. Amen? Okay, just checking you're with me. So, when I put my faith in Christ, I come to now experience the beginning of my personal journey in the predetermined plan that God has to produce good. And in the future, of course, there is the promise ultimately of something that is going to 
be true in us. And here now is the key. This is the goal. This is what God is shooting for. This is his big purpose in us. Conforming us to the image of his son. Okay, you see that. The good is the conforming to the image of his son. That is the good. Now, in the world, people say, well, that doesn't sound very good to me. But for a Christian who sees now Jesus Christ as the ultimate treasure, as the greatest man, the God-man savior of the world, to be like him, to follow him, is the greatest possible privilege that there is. So we view that as like the greatest. In the world, not so much. But for us, yes, by faith, we do. God agrees with us. That conforming us to the likeness of his son is the greatest thing that he can do in our life. And so that is God's goal for us. In fact, the Greek word there for image is the word icon. Greek word icon. We get the English word icon from it. And it means this. To have the same form as something else. To have the same form as something else. Jesus used the word in Matthew 22 when the religious leaders came to him and said, uh, is it right for us to pay taxes? And Jesus said, uh, do you have a coin? And they said, uh, yeah, we got one right here somewhere. And so they lifted it up. He says, whose image is on that coin? Whose icon, whose likeness is on that coin? And of course it was Caesar. He says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God the things that are God. That, that likeness though of Caesar, much like if you've got a penny in your pocket, If you pull that penny out and you look at it, there is the likeness of Abraham Lincoln on that. How did that get there? Well, there was a piece of copper at the mint and they had some kind of a stamp and they went down and wham, like that. And up came and lo and behold, there is the, the, it it looks like Abraham Lincoln. Now, I never met Abraham Lincoln. I've seen pictures, but it looks kind of like him, don't you think? The mint did that by stamping it onto the copper. God is in the process. Christian, listen, this is the big thing. God is in the process in your life of stamping, impressing upon your heart and your mind and your values and your priorities and your hopes and your dreams and your foundations. He is impressing on you the likeness of his son so that we, in our, the way that we think and what we value and the direction of our life and the nature and the course of the way that we live, that we are resembling Christ. That's the big thing that God's doing. So, if this is what God is doing in our life, to make us like Christ, then we can look at how he probably worked in his own son's life and to see the way that he does this, right? Because Jesus, Hebrews says, learned obedience. He became what he was. How did God do that in Jesus' experience? Any any white picket fences there in Jesus' life? How about the trouble-free living? Oh, that was Christ's experience, wasn't it? Everyone loved him all the time. Never a contrary word about him. Never rejected by anybody. Always healthy, no pain. Lived a good long life. Oh, no, wait a second. That's not the case at all, is it? Christ's life was a life of suffering. Isaiah says that he was a man acquainted with grief. Jesus Christ became a qualified Savior through suffering. 
And so here we are. Why would we think that we would somehow escape this? That he would have a whole other plan that actually in my life, the way that God's going to do it is he's going to just make me happy all the time. Happy, happy, happy. No, never that way. Never. And here's where people that join Christianity to find out if it works get so frustrated and they don't stick with it. Most people that say that, you know what, I'm going to give that whole Christianity thing a try. Normally they do that because there's some disaster in their life and they're viewing the Christianity as the way to get out from it. I need to get God on my side. If I get God on my side, then the troubles in my life will disappear. Uh, No, actually, the guarantee is if you are a Christian, you're going to have troubles in your life. Why? Because his son had troubles and he's making you like him. So if you're here trying it out, you're just, you're not going to like it. Okay? You're just not going to like it. And you're not going to last. This is also why the TV preachers who promise, use Christianity to promise good health and lots of money and all the rest, they have nothing to say in a recession. They can't go to Sierra Leone, Africa, or Haiti and have any quality ministry there because the message that Christianity just makes you happy all the time doesn't work. It's vacuous and superficial. Don't watch them. I'm serious. So we want comfortable and trial-free living. God wants to make us like his son. We want cancer-free living. God wants to make us like his son. We want the admiration of everybody around us. God wants to make us like his son. So when a sovereign God brings trouble and trial into our life, he is doing it to form into us the image of his son. Our response to that will say a lot about what we define as good. Because if my, the idol of my heart is trouble-free living, then I am going to see this kind of thing as some kind of God making a mistake or God doesn't love me, or God isn't good, when in actuality, being made into the image of God, uh, Jesus is the greatest good, and the trial means that he does love you. You see, it's a whole different way of looking at it. But we got to look at it through the scriptures. This is, a, this is a good thing. He brings trouble because he loves us, and he wants to make us like his son. And God is determined to get us there. And the only way that he's going to get us there is with suffering. Because that's the way that he got Jesus there. So, there's lots to say on this. But here's what Jesus said. If anyone would be my disciple, he must take up his cross and follow me. Now that sounds like just trouble-free living, doesn't it? Carrying a cross. You know, crosses are hard to carry. If you came to the Good Friday service, it took two guys to carry the cross up here and to set it up. Crosses have splinters. Cross, they're, they're awkward. They get in the way of doing all the other things you want to do in life. But that's what Jesus said. Following Christ is a path of suffering. It doesn't begin with gleeful, happy, trouble-free living. It begins with a suffering Savior on a cross. And that defines the whole thing what it means to follow him. 
So what should we do in the midst of recessions in our life? Well, we can get mad at God, but that doesn't work so well. We can blame God, but then that doesn't really work so well. We can get bitter towards God, but then that doesn't really work so well. Here's what we need to do. We need to embrace what God is doing in the trial and agree agree with him that it is for my good. That's what we need to do. And this is... You know, this is something, I'll tell you one thing I try to do in, uh, in my life. And, you know, life is so like this, isn't it? One day good, one day bad. You know, and yesterday, well, Friday, leader at our church called me. He said, how you doing? I go, I got a poopy attitude. <laughs> That's what I said to him. And I don't even know why I had a poopy attitude. I mean, I just, I like woke up on the wrong side of the bed or something. I just, all day, everything was just, bleh. I don't have an explanation. And I'm a man. So. <laughs> but here, here is what. In my spiritual moments, I I don't do this all the time. I wish that I would. Here's what I try to bring to my mouth. I know this is good for me. And sometimes I got to be like, I know this is good for me. But somehow bringing that up brings to bear this truth to the situation. I don't know how it's good for me. But I know why it's good for me. Because somehow in this, like everything in my life, God is working and conforming me to the image of his son. And this is a good thing. So, you with me on that? Get it? All right. Here's the next. And boy, this is a, this is a good one too. What should we do to have a good recession, a good trial? Give thanks to God in the midst of it. Give thanks to God in the midst of it. Here's what, here's what uh, 1 Thessalonians 5 says. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Okay, give thanks in all circumstances. Hmm. That's a little unpleasant, isn't it, to think about? How? Like, what would that mean to give thanks in the trials of life? I don't think that it means that we necessarily have to give thanks for the thing itself. Because there are things that happen in our lives that are tragic, that are evil. And I don't think God's calling us to give thanks for that thing itself. However, we are to give thanks for the good fruit, spiritual fruit, that that thing is producing in my life. Now there's something that we can always do. Now you might say, well, like what? I can't imagine there being anything good. Well, let me give you some examples from Scripture. Here's one. How this trial is removing self-sufficiency from me. Paul writes this in uh, 2 Corinthians 1. Here's an example of Paul doing the very thing we're talking about. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. Okay, now, you and I probably read that in our devotions or something. We're like, we just kind of fly by it. Oh, yeah, the afflictions they had in Asia. Okay, now, wait a second. You know the afflictions that he had in Asia? He was beaten. He was stoned. He was, he was maligned. 
He was, I mean, he had horrible things that happened to him. We read that and we're like, oh, that was no big deal. It's kind of like, uh, you know, the difference between major surgery and minor surgery. Yeah. Uh, minor surgery is surgery that somebody else is having. Major surgery is any surgery that you're having, <laughs> right? Now it's a whole nother deal. I had somebody uh, uh, be- between the services said to me, do you know the difference between a recession and a depression? I go, no. He says, a recession is when your neighbor loses his job. A depression is when you lose your job. <laughs> so, but you see the point there. Now it's a whole different deal because I'm experiencing myself. So Paul had these afflictions and he says this, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. We live our lives. We think we can do it. We think we got what it takes. We think that we are smarts and our resources that we can make this whole thing happen. And then we go through a trial and all of a sudden we're like, wait a second, I don't have what I need now. One good fruit of that is the recognition that I need God. It gets self-sufficiency out and it, re- it replaces it with a trust in the God of heaven. That's a good fruit. We can give thanks for that. Here's another one. The spiritual fruit it is producing. The trial is producing fruit. I can give thanks for that. James says this in James 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. That's a tough verse to apply faithfully, isn't it? Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Why, James? Why don't you tell us? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or perseverance. And let perseverance have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So he says, count it all joy. Again, I don't think we have to count joy in the thing itself necessarily. But to look at what it is doing in my life, and maybe what it is doing in my family, and what it is doing in my relationship with God, and what it is doing in my relationship with my wife or my husband or whatever it is, these are good things that trials do in our life. Count it all joy. Give thanks for them. So he's not talking here about a kind of superficial, Pollyannish, yippy-skippy kind of approach to life. I mean, he's not saying, for example, I told you a few months ago that I, along with everybody else, when the stock market was going like, like this, I was, getting, I was getting soaked. And it's not like I was watching that you know, every day, kind of seeing what was going on, down another 500 points, down another 2%. You know, it's not like you look at it and you go, all right, that's great. Keep going lower, lower. don't think he's saying that. Or... To come home, you know, honey, I lost my job today. Praise God. Honey, our kids, daddy lost his job today. Let's celebrate. Let's go to Chuck E. Cheese or something. You know, it's, that's not what he's saying. Or like this week at the conference, you know, I go to these conferences and I run into guys that I knew back in the day, went to school with or whatever. And so this week, you know, to get the question, you married yet? You know, it's not like I respond like, no! <laughs> love loneliness, love it! People ask dumb questions, you know that? Are you still stupid?
So it's not the thing itself, but the fruit that it is producing that we can always give thanks for. Okay? And know that God is always at work in it. Always. Here's another, the detaching of my affections from temporal things. You know, Colossians, for example, says, set our heart and mind on things above, and yet we live our lives so much on, for these things in this world. And so God brings trials into our life to get our thoughts off of this stuff here and to be thinking about the things that last, things of eternity. Uh, D.A. Carson, who actually spoke at this conference, uh, wrote this. In fact, we begin to wonder if some pain and sorrow in this life is not using God's providential hand to make us homesick for heaven. To detach us from this world, to prepare us for heaven, to draw our attention to himself and away from the world of merely physical things. Here's the last thing to give thanks for, the opportunity to join the sufferings of Jesus. Philippians 3.10, famous verse, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and we like that part, don't we? Knowing Jesus, yes, we're for that. The power of his resurrection when I die, eternal life, mm, I'm for that. But then he goes on to say this. And may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Well, now that part we're not so excited about, are we? I would like to know him, and I want to know the power of his resurrection. But I'd like to do that in a trouble-free, difficulty-free life. Doesn't work that way. So that when I'm going through a suffering of some kind or a trial, to bring to my mind the experience of Jesus Christ in this life and to think of myself, you know what, this is similar to what he went through. That I might understand his sufferings in a new way and have another reason to love him. So that when I feel betrayal from a friend, to think about, you know what, Jesus had this. Judas kissed him. Think about that. Whoa, what was that like? Or when I am wrongfully accused about something, to think about Jesus Christ who never did anything wrong ever and yet was accused of horrible things. To think about that. Or when my body hurts, when I've got a physical ailment and many of us right here in this room have got some kind of pain somewhere going on, to think about the physical sufferings of Jesus Christ. To think, wow, what would that have been like? When I am misunderstood, when I am weary, when I am lonely, add whatever you want to the list. To think about how Christ experienced the gambit of human suffering exponentially more intense than ours. And to give thanks for him. So he suffered to identify with us. Our sufferings are a chance to identify with him and to have another reason to love him and to give thanks for him. So in all these things, give thanks Here's what happens. Giving thanks fights against the flesh's natural response to trouble. It's hard to give thanks and be angry. It's hard to give thanks and be bitter. It is hard to give thanks and to want revenge for something. Okay? Giving thanks to God for the good he is doing, even when we can't see it, is a great way to make the most of a recession. So I wonder today, are you prepared to do that? Think of the thing, as I talk about trouble or trial... Probably everybody here has something going, something comes to your mind. Something in your life that isn't the way that you think it ought to be. Are you prepared to give thanks for it? To in some way count it joy for something that God is doing or using in your life? And I wonder how that might look for you. I would encourage you to do it even right now. This might, be a, this might be a victory day for you right now to give thanks to God for what he is doing in your life.
All right. Here's the last thing, and this is a great one. Here's the bottom line. Fight, faith fights fear by resting in God's ability to meet our needs. Faith fights fear. When we go through a trial, there is fear just rises up like this. The fear that it's always going to be this way, or I'm not going to make it, or I'm going to be found out, or I am going to be uh, uh, disappointed or disappoint other people. There's all these fears that rise up. And here as Christians now, we have this faith. And so fear and faith go into a kind of tussle trying to decide who is actually going to win over this particular issue. What we need to do is to fight against that fear by resting in God's ability to meet our needs. And here's how to do it. Christian, this is for Christians. If you're not a Christian right now, I would just say to you that, 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 that you have another thing to consider, your eternity and the claims of Christ and how you can have your sins forgiven by faith in him. And we would love for, to see you do that. But this is for Christians, what I'm about to say. Salvation is by faith. It rests in the promises of God that he has actually forgiven our sins. That Jesus Christ really did bear our guilt on the cross. That, 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 that he really was resurrected from the dead. That someday when I stand before God, God's not going to say, I was just kidding. Or uh, no, or you're mistaken. That these things are true. So that when you and I are on our deathbed, and we have that whatever moment it is when we know we are about to pass from this life to the next, and in our hearts as a Christian, we think to ourselves, you know what? I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. I believe that I am about to step into eternal life. In that moment, your faith is just like on steroids, right? It's strong. And even right now, we have that, but we'll really have it in that moment. Here's the thing. If you can trust God for all of your eternity, heaven, not hell, why can't we trust him to put bread on the table, to provide a job, to help with a rebellious child, to work in the broken relationship, to help us overcome the past bitterness, Whatever it is. I mean, if he can do this, and I can trust him for this, why can't I trust him for the little thing in my life? Which is temporal, here and gone. Friends, it's the same faith. It's not like there's some secret thing now, well, we've got to come up with this new kind of faith, a special kind of faith that we apply to the temporal things in life. It is the same faith. We take what we believe to be true about God in the future, and we apply it to the temporal things in this life. And lo and behold, we find that God is good for it. He's good. We can trust him. Psalm 56 verse 3, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Isaiah 41, fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Proverbs 29, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Why are you downcast, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And then this passage, which I love so very much, Habakkuk 3. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. 
the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herds in the stall. Now, in an agricultural farming kind of uh, uh, society, when there's no figs on the tree, and there's no crop in the field, and there's no herds in the barn, that means that you got nothing. But what does he say? Yet, in spite of all of the depression and recession of my life, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. And there it is, friends. There's the bottom line right there. I mean, the rest of it's good, but that's the core of it right there. In spite of my circumstances, I will trust in God. And the reason that we can is that our God, he transcends this. You know, our lives are like this, and our finances are like this, and our marriages are like this, and our families are like this, but God transcends all of it. And he is not ever in recession. He is never worried. He is never wondering what's going to happen. He never lacks the resources to meet our needs. That is never in play at all. God is greater than all of it. And so he has the ability to meet our needs. He can bring comfort. He can bring peace. He can bring security. The things that our hearts long for. And on top of that, he says in Hebrews 13, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So. Why so downcast, O my soul? Why fear? Why worry in the ups and downs of life? We actually find that it's not that we find faith in troubled times. Troubled times find our faith and reveal it to be true and show the object of our faith to be one who is able to meet all our needs. Friends, listen. All your needs. Our God. As the children's song goes, I learned this as a kid. He's able. He's able. I know. He's able. I know my Lord is able to carry me through. And that is what it means to live by faith and not by sight. And I pray that God would help all of us in the recessions of our lives to do so to his glory, conforming us to the likeness of his Son, to whom be all the praise. Amen.